Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, North Carolina. With me is Dr. Julie Urban. She is the Assistant Director of Genomics and Microbiology here at the museum. Thank you, Dr. Urban, for joining us today. I noticed that your field of study, not only are you the Assistant Director of Genomics and Microbiology here at the museum, you're also an evolutionary biologist. What in the world is an evolutionary biologist? Well, um, we all know about family histories. If we think about family trees, we can trace where our relatives came from, how long they've been in this country or come to other countries. I do that, but I do that in longer time scales. I study, I think, a super cool group of insects, plant hoppers, and they're sap-feeding insects. Their closest relatives we're most familiar with are cicadas. There's over 14,000 described species of plant hoppers. And I use DNA sequences as well as comparing aspects of their body structure to trace their family history. But because they first appeared on the planet over 130 million years ago, <laughs> it's an older story. Sure. <laughs> and But basically, by looking at their DNA, I can discern where on the planet they originated and how they um, moved, like with continental drift, to occupy the continents where they occur today. And I can also trace how they've co-evolved relationships with interesting bacteria. I know it's a challenge for me to sort of do my own family tree when there's only 40 or 50 people involved. I can't imagine doing it with, what was it, you said 14,000 different yes. species? Yes. <laughs> well, it's easier when the DNA doesn't lie. <laughs> and so you don't have, and it doesn't have to remember. So can you tell our students what you mean by the DNA doesn't lie? Yes. So basically we know DNA is the blueprint that encodes us sitting here, all of our proteins, everything that makes us work is encoded by our DNA. And so we think, you know, DNA encodes genes we're all familiar with. And so DNA, the A's, C's, G's, and T's that are are the letters that make up this code, over the course of time, they develop random changes. So every time your cells divide, you think about your hair, your hair grows. For your hair to grow, each cell has to divide. The DNA has to copy. And so whenever things get copied, sometimes you get an error. And those errors accumulate over the course of time. And so sometimes those errors, if they're bad for you, we call them deleterious mutation, then perhaps that plant hopper that develops some kind of copy might make it not live long enough to reproduce and pass its DNA on. And so those mutations kind of get weeded out. But a lot of these just random copying errors have no effect at all. And they build up over time. And lead to a whole new species. And lead to a whole new species. And I can track those changes and see who's most closely related to whom. Let me try to simplify and summarize. Mm -hmm. So at one point, however many, 130 million years ago, I mm -hmm. think, there was the original plant hopper. Yes. And then inside this plant hopper were millions of cells, all which each had their yes. own DNA. Yep. And then as this plant hopper reproduced, mm -hmm. sometimes those cells, there might be a little bit of a change. And if the change was bad, then that species would probably die out. If the change was fine, not harmful or beneficial in any way, th that would continue to reproduce. So over the course of 130 million years, all of these duplications and all of these copies as the animals reproduce have led to all these different kinds of species. Yes, that's exactly it. And what's interesting is that you have these species are living in certain habitats. And we know, especially over that long period of time, those habitats change. Now, if we think about it, 
instead of one individual, a whole population of interbreeding plant hoppers, they're doing their thing. Then in that population, let's say you have a mountain range rise up over the course of a few million years. And so basically that population can be separated into two separate populations by that mountain range. You know, so you still have those random mutations that are going on in each of those separate populations because they can hop, but they're not good flyers. And so we know that, let's say in the case of mountain ranges, often one side of a mountain range is wetter than the other side. And so now these habitats are slightly different and those habitats are going to favor different mutations in those two different populations. And so those populations then, because they're living in different habitats, those, um, we call it natural selection, is going to um, prefer different changes in these insects. They're ultimately going to um, fit better with the different habitats on those two sides of the mountains. It could be the case that if the one side of the mountain range is moister and wetter, it could be the case that um, plant hoppers there that are darker in coloration could be favored. They could be just be a random mutation. You're a little bit darker in your wing pattern, but being darker might make you hide a little bit better from predators in that wetter environment. And so over the course of time, you might have a preference. Those plant hoppers that are darker in coloration might come to be more prevalent compared to, let's say, on the other side of the mountain range. If it's very dry and we think about desert, lighter habitats, there you might have an advantage for plant hoppers who are lighter in coloration. Look so you more like sand or something. Exactly. And so you could see then that becomes a physical difference between those two species. With plant hoppers, how does knowing so much about them impact kids? It's cool to know about, but why is it so important? To me, the most interesting thing about them scientifically are the symbioses that they... Symbioses? Symbioses, when you have two or more organisms that live together and that depend upon each other to survive. And so here, one of my plant hoppers is actually called the peanut-headed bug and bacteria. And so we all have bacteria that live in our guts, and we know that those bacteria kind of pre-digest our food, and we depend upon them. And plant hoppers have those too, and so that's very important. But they have special relationships with bacteria. They have other bacteria that have co-evolved with them over lengths of evolutionary time, tens or hundreds of millions of years. And those bacteria actually feed the plant hoppers from the inside out. Plant hoppers feed on plant sap or phloem, which is just sugar water. And it doesn't have the amino acids that are needed to build proteins for the plant hoppers. So they have to get those proteins, those amino acids from somewhere. And what's interesting is that these bacteria, um, plant hoppers actually construct a cell that they wrap around these bacteria. And these cells containing these bacteria actually get organized into organs inside the plant hoppers. And so you think about your liver is made of your liver cells, your heart is made of your cells. You know, in plant hoppers, there are some organs that are made of bacterial cells. And so these bacteria make those amino acids and feed the plant hopper from the inside out. And so to me, it's it, that's really important. You have almost like nested dolls. You have as many as five different bacterial species that have co-evolved with plant hoppers. And plant hoppers are the only animals known to make a separate organ for each of the separate bacterial species that they have co-evolved with. 
And so to me, that's why you should care because we have these ongoing relationships with bacteria. And I think it's a really super cool story as to how something that originally was a pathogen. And a pathogen is something that makes you sick. Yep. So we think of like something that causes strep throat is a pathogen. And so here, plant hoppers took advantage of that opportunity and made that work for them. So learning about how that process originally started or or how originally occurred would then maybe help with the development of new drugs or things like that that could help people get healthy if there were pathogen or something. Yes, certainly. And and the other with plant with plant hoppers, kind of the more immediate payoff with them is also because there are some species, it's a small fraction of the 14,000, a small fraction really are horrible crop pests. And Um. so they're pests of all of the major food commodities. And so, for example, there are plant hoppers that are called rice hoppers. Uh-huh. And they actually, um, they're really problematic in Asia because they damage rice by stealing the plant sap, sure. but also they transmit viruses. Okay, And so when you get an outbreak of some of these plant hoppers in Asia, it can decrease rice production by over 80%. Oh my gosh. And so they're really economically significant critters. Sure. And potentially by understanding the bacteria that they depend upon, this could provide a different way for us to potentially control those pests. Ah, fantastic. Did you always think you wanted to be a plant hopper specialist? This is um, my second PhD. My first PhD was in psychology. Wow. And I never voluntarily touched an insect. Um, (laughs) I I got interested, though, in thinking about, you know, psychology as the study of behavior. And as I was teaching at a small college, um, I was reading some older works, and it had to do with, like, in thinking of how behavior has evolved. And that blew my mind. I never really thought about behavior as evolving. I think about things like color and your body shape and form. But behavior evolves as well. You know, we think we're really good at learning. Some birds are good at song learning. I was teaching a class one day and I said, if I had to do it all over again, I would study this. And I thought, "Mm, I'm not even 30. What am I doing? And so I went back and I took classes and I actually wanted to study song learning and birds from an evolutionary perspective. And I volunteered in a lab at a museum much like this. And I knew I needed to learn something about DNA. And I knew that I was interested in looking at that family history, looking at the big picture, you know, big time picture. And the um, scientist whose lab I volunteered in, he studied hoppers, plant hoppers and other hoppers. As soon as I met these guys, I fell in love. That was it. And I said, I can spend the next 40 years studying these insects because not many folks do. And there's so many cool things, particularly about, about these bacterial symbionts that have potential to really be impactful and no one was studying them. Knowing that at any point in your life, you can pivot and you can learn about something new and you can choose to go in a different direction. And it's really a matter of finding opportunities and taking advantage of those opportunities. Yes. And I think for me, the the real big lesson in my personal experience was that the most limiting parts for me, the most limiting aspects of my life have been expectations that I had of myself. I never thought of myself as somebody who liked the outdoors. I never thought of myself as someone who hiked or did those kind of things. I came home from school and I would go to the mall or I would watch a soap opera, you know, those don't exist anymore, but I would, you know, <laughs> play a video game. And and certainly I thought insects were icky and gross. And it wasn't until I was an adult and I was open to trying these things that I realized how super cool they are. Yeah. You know, I feel like I... 
um, I started picking up the um, exoskeletons of cicadas and sticking them in my pockets. And my husband <laughs> would do the wash and then find all these cicada exuvia. And he said I had little boy pockets, you know. But um, don't be limited by what you think you like or don't like. Be open to trying things because, man, I was surprised. And that's made my life so happy. If students were interested in evolutionary biology, what advice might you give them? I would say to whatever extent you can get some hands-on experience, if it's either in the field helping out with some research project or in a laboratory helping out. I mean, we've had even high school students working in my lab with the plant hoppers. And so I would say any hands-on experience, you won't know until you try it what you might like. So try to get out there and participate. And if you think you might want to, you know, be an evolutionary biologist, that's about research. So try to get involved in research where you can at your museum or local university or high school. Great. And so for some of our students who might not be familiar with what the field is or what a lab is, the field doesn't necessarily mean a field of grass or whatever. It's just being outside wherever these, whatever you're studying whatever might you're studying. be located. Even the field, we study um, face mites in our lab. Tell me about face mites. Face mites. 100% of people have them, okay. <laughs> as far as we know. Um, they're tiny little arthropods. They're microscopic, but they have eight legs. They're arthropods. Their closest relatives that we're familiar with are dust mites or ticks or spiders. So these are whole, whole animals. It's not a little bacterium or a fungus. It's an animal in your face. And they've been, there's two species. They were described over a hundred years ago. And what we've studied, we've actually sampled DNA from people's faces. We've sampled gunk, like sweat from your face. <laughs> and sometimes we see mites, sometimes we don't. But if we extract the DNA there and copy a piece of DNA that only mites have, then we find 100% of our adults who visited the museum who we sampled have face mite DNA on them. And we're actually publishing this paper and so we all have an animal living in our hair follicles. So worst case scenario, it's neutral. It doesn't do anything, but likely it's beneficial to us. It's like almost like our own little remora cleaner from the inside. Yeah. yeah. So likely very beneficial. We're studying how mites from different people. Right now we're doing what we do and we reconstruct the evolutionary history of these face mites. So their family tree. And we're sampling people from different countries around the world. And what we're starting to see is that one of these species of face mites, folks from the U.S. who are physically, geographically located to each other, their face mites tend to be more similar to each other than they are to the face mites of people from other places around the world. And so what we're looking at is to see whether or not these mites, whether their evolutionary history or their family tree tracks human movement patterns around the world. So can these mites tell us something about our own human story? Every time you learn more about whether it be hoppers or face mites. Uh -huh. So every time we learn more about those, we're learning more about our own evolution as a human race. We certainly are. And yeah. to connect that back to plant hoppers and like how I, I like to think about mites and plant hoppers, you have in both cases, you know, we have this critter living on us, another symbiosis. So that's like a common theme. How do we manage we, including plant hoppers, how do we manage these bacteria that are so prevalent and dominate the world? Right, right. So Dr. Urban, since this is the walk-in classroom, I have to ask, where is your favorite place to walk? I think my favorite place to walk is I, I collect plant hoppers in the deserts of the southwest U.S. And so I would have to say in um, when I go out collecting my insects in 
the Great Basin Desert in Nevada. Mm. That's just as far as you can see oceans. It's called the Sagebrush Ocean. So I would say in Sagebrush Desert Habitat, collecting plant hoppers. That's my favorite place. Wonder, and you just go from plant to plant and just plant put them in your pocket. Look, exactly. <laughs> it's just it's the best day I can imagine is when I do that, when I get to do oh, that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks Thank for all your hard work. Thank you so much. Take care.